Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning and welcome to our two here of Mornings with Carmen, except of course it's Mornings without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today, for the rest of this week and into next week. It's been so enjoyable to be with all of you again as listeners starting our day this way as believers in the body of Christ together. I was going to bed last night thinking a little bit about that passage from Hebrews 10 about let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. And love is some of what we've talked about a little bit too this morning, really related to National Best Friend Day. We would love to hear your stories about your best friend, anything that makes that person your best friend or what it has meant to you to maybe have a best friend. For those of you that uh, maybe can't identify that best friend in your life right now, what kind of characteristics and qualities would uh, would do that? So uh, there's uh, some great text coming in already. We have one uh, that is as a strong introvert, I have remained close to my few but strong high school friends. And, and Paul, I do find actually that a lot yeah. of people say, I just need a couple of friends, right? I don't need mm-hmm. to be part of some big well, herd and just have a couple of good friends. I, as an introvert myself, I dig deep to a handful of people instead of so broadly spread out. That's just the way I am naturally. And this person, I actually like what he continued to I say. I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. But I only had one close friend in college, dot, dot, dot. So I married her 43 years ago. <laughs> I love that. I just, we talk so often in the show and, and Carmen does in terms of just the different versions of relationship and sexuality and all of these things that are so confusing in the midst of, mm-hmm. of Gay Pride Month. And I, to, to have, to shine a little bit of a witness here as Reverend Dr. Castro did in this text line this morning and saying that uh, my best friend, some 43 years into a marriage relationship, something to be celebrated here mm-hmm. this morning. Congratulations on those 43 years, by the way. And I love so. it. Thanks for the story. We'd love to hear your stories again at 877-933-2484. This morning, you can text them in uh, during National Best Friend Day in terms of what a friend has meant to you in your life. And Paul, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to welcome Dr. Jeff Barros from the Christian Medical and Dental Association into the show. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the medical headlines of the day. I noticed that there was a headline that was a little confusing to me is that I usually associate Lyme's disease and ticks and deer ticks with sort of the woods or yeah. or the deep brush. And you want to wear long clothing as you walk through some of the foliage out there. But in this case, it says as people flock to the beaches of California, during the hot summer months, so are ticks that could carry Lyme's disease. Scientists have collected, get this, several thousand ticks from beaches in the San Francisco area over the past four years. They find this surprising as they have no idea which animals are transporting the ticks to the sand, but scientists say that could change over time where they continue to come to the beach because they are prolific breeders, especially when they have a lot of blood to feast on. I, is there any reason to like a tick? I, 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 no. I, mean, I just, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they came in Genesis 3, post they, They're part of the fall. I yeah, think definitely. they clearly are part of the fall. Or they were mutated, at, you know, but yeah. Yeah, it's, just... it's a tick. So I, this, clearly it's, it's one of the things that we're mindful of this time of year. And what I'm going to start with with Jeff in just a minute is, is a pretty 
groundbreaking headline that came out last night, and that is that the FDA approves the first new Alzheimer's drug in two decades. And so we see that the company Biogen has an injectable drug that is supposed to slow cognitive decline in the early stage dementia and as ravaging as Alzheimer's is for people. I'm curious, is this hopeful news? Is it trustworthy news? What do we think about moving forward with with a treatment and a possible therapeutic intervention for Alzheimer's? I'm going to talk about that next with Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. About 10 minutes after the top of the hour, Dr. Jeff Barrows joins us this morning to talk through some of the medical headlines this morning. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Peter. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to be with you as well. I wanted to start here right at the top with this news that broke last night that the FDA has approved a a drug for Alzheimer's for a therapeutic intervention. What are you seeing in this? Because there's a little bit of controversy involved. There has been a little controversy, but I uh, overall I'm hopeful. The name of the drug is Adjuhelm, and uh, it is a a drug that it consists of antibodies that uh, have been shown to actually remove the amyloid plaque that is the cause of Alzheimer's disease. And so there are six million people here in the United States that suffer from Alzheimer's, and it's the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. And so one of the reasons for the controversy is that uh, they've been studying this drug since 2015. And it's interesting in that they began to analyze the data about two years ago. And initially they thought, oh, it's not working. And, And they actually stopped their trials for about six months, and then researchers began to reanalyze the data, looking specifically at the high dose of antibodies that they were giving, and also focusing in on patients that had very early Alzheimer's. And when they looked at the data that way, they found, wait a minute, there is some improvement that's happening here. So they actually ended up restarting the trial about a year ago, and then taking it to the FDA. And uh, basically what they showed is that there was improvement and a removal of about 70% of the amyloid plaque over 18 months in some of these very early Alzheimer's patients and also resulted in improvement in their mental capacity their ability to function around the house, do everyday household chores. So with that, the FDA decided to go ahead and grant them uh, an approval. They used what's known as the accelerated approval process, which is reserved solely for severe or significant diseases like cancer and, of course, Alzheimer's qualifies. And so uh, I'm interested to see what's going to happen moving forward. I I do think we need to be cautious. It's not a cure-all. Uh, it's expensive medication. Um, it's it's going to need to be given IV, but at least it is something that's now showing uh, not only an improvement in the clinical symptoms, but also removal of these amyloid plaques in this terrible disease. Mm-hmm. Jeff, help me understand amyloid plaque. What are we talking about in terms of the origin of this? How does this start? Do we Do we understand the process of how it begins in somebody's brain? We don't really understand why some people get it and others don't. Don't uh, Amyloid is a form of a protein. It's kind of a, an excess protein in the brain, and there's probably a genetic component to it as well. 
But it's not just genetic. It's it may be lifestyle th- factors that come into play. But this this protein builds up around the ends of the neurons in the brain, and it kind of uh, keeps them from being able to transmit the electric signal from one neuron to another. And obviously, then that causes the symptoms that we see in terms of forgetfulness, uh, difficulty in moving, those types of symptoms. So there's uh, there's a lot that is not known about Alzheimer's. And that's one of the reasons we've taken uh, so long to get a good cure. Interesting. If, if, if you were able to remove 70% of plaque from my teeth, which is the only form of plaque that I know, I don't know if it's bacteria builder or whatever, <laughs> I feel very good about my teeth. So this is pretty substantive to be able to say that there is a reversal of this plaque in people's neuro, uh, neurological structures. Yeah, and again, it was mainly those that started very early. They they were disappointed in that those that are fairly late in their, their Alzheimer's, if they start giving the drug at that point, it's maybe somehow the solidification of the amyloid uh, is, is a factor, but the antibodies that are contained within this drug did not have as, as good a result in removing late-forming uh, amyloid in these patients. Mm-hmm. Jeff, changing the subject but staying within this field of neurological research, some pretty interesting headlines in which there is an association of at least some sort of therapeutic related to boxing, of all things, for those people that are suffering from Parkinson's disease. And and my association with that would be from Muhammad Ali, who seemed to have maybe contracted Parkinson's disease, at least in part because of boxing. So what are we talking about here? Yeah, you you wouldn't think that boxing would be beneficial uh, to uh, patients that have Parkinson's disease. And, of course, the reason that Muhammad Ali got it was the brain trauma, they think, that induced uh, the Parkinson's. And Parkinson's is really a low level of a particular, uh, what we call a neurotransmitter. It's, It's known as dopamine. And, again, variety of reasons that it occurs. But what it does is it, 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 it impacts a patient's ability in terms of their coordination of movement and also their mental ability. And they found that, that patients who begin doing regular exercises with boxing two to three days a week for about 75 to minutes to an hour and a half, uh, that forces their brain to, to kind of rejuvenate that dopamine. They, they, they are using various different muscle groups in their body. They're using their coordination in a different way. And they found, especially if those patients are kind of forced to go a little bit beyond what they may feel comfortable in doing in terms of exercise, it really has shown great benefits. So it slows the, the progression of Parkinson's disease, improves some of their mental capability as well. And so some patients, again, if they start early in the course of the disease, have found that they can continue to have relatively normal lifespan lifestyles for several years after being diagnosed. So very exciting. Yeah, it's interesting. I once had, I once had a physician tell me that if you just start with exercise, so many of the chronic kinds of conditions, they might not be cured, but there will be an alleviation and an improvement in that. Just more evidence that exercising on a regular basis is really critical to ongoing health. Absolutely. I, I'm a strong proponent to try and exercise at least 45 minutes a day myself. But yeah, I tell my patients, uh, for every hour you exercise, you likely prolong your life by two hours. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Well, thanks for the information on some of the neurological research, Jeff. We're going to take a short break and come back, change the conversation to some pretty interesting headlines coming out related to genetic therapy research, both the good of that and some of the disturbing headlines. Some more to come with Dr. Jeff Barrows next on Mornings Without Carmen. 
Love the Rocky music coming back after having talking about boxing and its intersection with a therapeutic positive result in Parkinson's disease. We've been talking a bit about National Best Friend Day today as well. And we have a listener texting in, Paul. Lisa is saying that her best friend, Carrie, has always been with her no matter what. Truth teller, steady support since the fifth grade. Fifty years later, still so thankful to have her in my life. What a great story. And, uh, Jeff, we were talking a little bit about best friends off air at the break, too. And you have a similar story to one of our listeners who had been married for 43 years. Yeah, I can very much resonate with that. Uh, my best friend I met uh, almost 45 years ago uh, at uh, a wonderful college in Minnesota, St. Olaf College. And uh, we have been married uh, coming on to 44 years uh, this coming August. So, I am just just honored and blessed to have her as my partner in life and as my best friend. Oh, that's great. Well, we have some more conversation to have about some of the gene therapy that is obviously controversial on some moral and ethical mm-hmm. kinds of levels, but there also is some good news coming from that for people who are suffering with long-term chronic, what seemed at one point to be hopeless kinds of conditions. Tell us what you're seeing. Well, you know, it's interesting. Gene therapy has been slow to evolve in the past couple of decades because we we, uh, isolated and identified the human genome back in 2003. So you would think that there would have been this great progress in gene therapy, but it's very difficult to get uh, the the gene that's that you know is the right gene put into the DNA of a person who has a genetic abnormality. But recently there's been some progress in that. There's a whole series of diseases that are called lysosomal storage disorders. Uh, I don't want to go into too much uh, deep detail on this, but lysosomes are found in every one of our cells. And and you can look at them as the the recycling center of our cells because they take the waste products and they convert them into reusable products or they get rid of them. And there's a, a group of about 50 of them where one of these enzymes that's critical in the function of the lysosome is is not being properly made. And so these patients have a buildup of these waste products. And an example of that is a disease called cystinosis where they are unable to recycle a particular amino acid called cysteine. And it's all because of one single gene within their DNA is not right. So what this company has found, Biogen, is that they have found a way to actually cut out the abnormal gene and put in the correct gene in these cells. And so what they've done and are doing with some very early studies is taking out uh, blood stem cells from these patients, then putting in this new gene and then growing the stem cells a little bit in the lab and then putting them back into the patient. Now, these stem cells have the ability to form into different types of cells throughout the body. So the goal is that these normal cells then will then kind of implant throughout the body of the person that has the particular disease and then begin having the ability to properly dispose of this cysteine. And it's working so far. It's a very exciting uh, development, a new field, and I I think we're going to be seeing more of this in the future. 
Yeah, Jeff, let's connect that form of research then to some, maybe some of the more disturbing kinds of research that can be conducted, and that is on human embryos, where historically there's been what's called a 14-day rule, where you're not allowed to continue experimenting on embryos past 14 days of development for a variety of reasons related to the development of the nervous system, the possibility of splitting into twins at that point. But even those first 14 days of experimentation, we're talking about human life, and, and that's disturbing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how stem cell research and what you've described is different than this human embryonic research that's becoming even more permissive past the 14-day rule. Yeah, there, there are two basic types of stem cells. They're what we call adult stem cells. So they're stem cells that can be taken from our body, like in the, the example I was just giving. They can come from bone or, or blood or various types of tissue. And these are perfectly ethical for research. But there are other researchers that are using what's known as embryonic stem cells. They're taking embryos out, or taking cells from embryos and destroying the embryos in the process and then trying to do the similar things with that type of stem cell. And that, of course, for us as Christians is absolutely unethical. And and I think it's because the scientists just take a very low view of, of the status of the embryo. They look at it as a piece of cellular material, not as a human being as we do as Christians. So, unfortunately, this international body just recently um, and it's the International Society for Stem Cell Research, just recently set out new guidelines, and they took away that arbitrary 14-day rule and said, really, it doesn't matter how late you want to do research on embryos. Uh, we're just going to take the 14-day rule away. And by the way, if you want to create what's known as a chimera, two different type of species, then that's also okay because they're actually justifying the end uh, through whatever means they find is necessary. Yeah, it's an incredibly disturbing field on some different levels, Jeff. I remember having an email interchange with a bioethicist, biopharmaceutical CEO out of Australia, and he was talking about the fact that they were buying embryos that were otherwise scheduled to be discarded from a company in order to conduct their continuing research on cancer and made the comment that if we can find a cure for cancer based on working with these embryonic stem cells, then does that not justify the use of the yeah. stem cells? And I just think that's where the, that, that, I mean, among the many places of the locus of the ethical problem here, that's among them, right? It, it absolutely is. We really see that those who don't have a Christian view of the world, a Christian mindset, will look at, at this biology as just raw material. It's raw material for research. Uh, whatever can be gained from it is worthwhile. There's no reason to take any pause at looking at the possibility. Is this, in fact, a very tiny, microscopic human being, which is, of course, where we come down as Christians? So, it's a sad development, and I think we're going to see more of it in the future. We just have about a minute left or so. Is there anything Christians can do in the midst of this, Jeff? It's hard. Sometimes it feels so paralyzing in light of these developments. Well, I don't know that Christians know that uh, actually our government is funding some of this research now, and I think if they're as upset about it as I am, they can advocate with their congressional representatives, with their senators, and say, hey, we are opposed to any type of federal funding on embryos whatsoever, so please stop this. Don't, don't give money to companies to do this kind of research, because the vast majority of this research can be done on adult stem cells rather than 
than using embryonic stem cells. Yeah, I know that there's a, a perceived efficacy among the embryonic stem cells that doesn't exist, at least in some people's mind, related to adult stem cells. But to your point, we can do all of the same research, even if it's a little bit more painstaking. Do I have that right? It's just a little bit more difficult to get them. They're not as readily available, but actually adult stem cells work even better than embryonic stem cells in many cases. So it's it's a much more lucrative and fruitful form of research rather than using embryos. Well, thanks, Jeff, so much for taking us into the weeds of some of these medical ethic conversations and doing so in an accessible way. Help us understand some of where we're headed. Just love what the, the work that you do and appreciate talking with you this morning. Oh, great to be with you, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll take a short break for some bottom-of-the-hour news and come back with author Warren Cole-Smith and his book, Faith-Based Fraud. Stay with us. Lots more to come here this morning. Well, reflecting just a little bit about what Dr. Jeff Barrows had to share related to medical and ethical research and embryonic research and the use of these very young lives in some experimental ways, so so disturbing on so many different levels. I think a lot of times we think about the abortion conversation in terms of life beginning at conception, and that's true on one level, but I think we can go even further than that. When we look at the biblical word for evil in the Hebrew Old Testament text, it's uh, the word raw, and it literally means to stand in the way of God's unfolding intention and design. And because every single person was foreknown before the beginning of the universe, even before we come into our physical body, there is this sense in which that we stand in the way of God's unfolding plan. And and uh, to, to be people who are redemptive kinds of people are to do what Jeff described, which is just to be even aware of what's going on from a sense of research and, and how we are approaching some of these things and to stand in the gap there, to let God's unfolding intention continue to do just that unfold. Well, up next, we've got uh, author Warren Cole Smith, who will join us with his book, Faith-Based Fraud. We've been talking quite a bit about the idea of the reformation of the church into the future, and he'll have some great thoughts and insights about how to do just that. This is Max Licato. Matthew was an apostle, a gospel writer, but before he was Matthew, he was Levi, a Jew who worked for the Roman IRS. As long as Rome got its part, the tax collectors could take as much as they wanted. They got rich by making people poor. One of the most difficult relationship questions is, what do we do with a Levi? Your Levi is the person with whom you fundamentally disagree. You follow different value systems. Your Levi is your opposite you. What if your opposite you is your boss, your parent, or child? How does God want us to respond to the Levi's of the world? I wonder if the best answer might be found, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is Max Lakato, and this is How Happiness Happens. It is about 22 minutes before the top of the hour here on the 8th of June, a Tuesday morning. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge and happy to be joined at this time by author Warren Cole Smith. Warren has been the president of Ministry Watch since October of 2019. More than 25 years of experience as a writer, editor, has been part of World Magazine, vice president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and has released this book, again, titled Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. Good morning, Warren. 
Good morning, Peter. Great to be with you. Yeah, you too. You know, you really missed it in terms of the release here, Warren. There's hardly anything <laughs> relevant in your book related to what's going on in Christianity today. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, that is not true. Uh, the uh, There's just so much going on. In fact, it's uh, been remarkable since the book has come out. Um, you know, people will ask me uh, about a particular story that's breaking in the news. Is that in the book? Is that in the book? Well, no, that actually happened after I published the book, after I finished writing the book. But but we do have a lot of great uh, stories in the book uh, that uh, we hope are more than just great stories. We hope they will provide lessons for uh, Christian leaders, for ministry leaders, church leaders, and donors, um, just anyone involved in Christianity that cares about the purity and the integrity of the church and our Christian ministries and all of our institutions. Yeah, Warren, well said. And I, I think about this idea of fraud, right? Is that fraud is something that is actually different than it appears to be. And you have studied so many of these cases of fraud in which things were just not as they actually were, at least outside looking in. Were there some common patterns, some common things that you recognized in in these fraudulent ministries? Some of the time it seemed like it was about extorting people for money based on the kingdom. Other times it just was living a double life behind the scenes. What kind of patterns are you noticing with all of these headlines that seem to be flooding us kind of almost month in and month out right now? Yeah, you know, there there were a few patterns that I saw, no matter what the scandal was, you know, and, and you rightly said, Peter, that some of these scandals were about financial fraud. Um, some of them, honestly, were about sex and, uh, uh, you know, power of some kind or another. In fact, I kind of uh, say that at the end of the day, it's not that complicated. Uh, the Bible talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that's kind of, you know, what we're looking at today. Most faith-based frauds can be kind of traced back to one of those three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they also um, have a, a a couple of characteristics. They are usually uh, characterized by a lack of transparency and accountability. In mm. fact, I would say that if there's a theme to the book, it is how can we make sure that we live lives that are transparent, uh, that have uh, hedges of accountability built around us and around the key leaders that are in our institutions. And I, and I want to say that these um, hedges of accountability, a lot of times leaders bristle at that. They don't, they don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to be told what they can't do. But let me tell you, these um, hedges of protection are not just to protect victims of fraud, but they are also to protect the leaders themselves. Because I could say that if there was yet another common characteristic of a lot of the people that are profile in faith-based fraud, it is that they didn't start out bad. They didn't start out uh, saying, you know, I'm gonna try to defraud just as many people as I can, or I'm gonna try to deceive as many people as I can. Often they started out with good intentions, godly intentions, wanting to serve the Lord, and yet they didn't have these guardrails of protection on the roads they were on, and they ended up in the ditch. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point that you're bringing up, Warren. Let's stay in that for just a minute, because we had David French on the program yesterday talking yep. about the same topic from a different angle, and he was referencing the idea the of the celebritization of these leaders and these pastors. And once you get sort of this celebrity status, they get insulated from anybody else and they're, they're protected almost at all costs because they are the show and they are the source of income and they are the source of people's livelihoods vocationally. And, and a lot of compromise can happen when you might worry if, if what is being revealed or transparent or accountable, if you reveal that there's a lot of livelihoods at stake and it, it puts a lot of pressure in the situation that leads to a lot of this corruption. 
Well, that's exactly right. In fact, I wrote a book in 2009 called A Lover's Quarrel with the Evangelical Church that really unpacked that whole notion of celebrityhood, what I call in that book the Christian industrial complex. Um, some examples of that in faith-based fraud would be people like Mark Driscoll, for example. Mark Driscoll, um, you know, many of our, your listeners might know, uh, was the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, one of the fastest growing churches in the country for about 10 years. But in the course of about 18 months, that church went from the largest, one of the largest churches in the country, to being completely out of business, non-existent. And one of the reasons for that was that it depended too much on Mark Driscoll, that that celebritization, as David French described it, of uh, of Mark Driscoll uh, ultimately led to its downfall whenever Mark Driscoll himself had some character issues that um, caused him, at least for a season, to be unfit for ministry. That that church uh, completely fell apart. We've got a whole chapter devoted to Mark Driscoll in Faith-Based Fraud. I wrote a lot of the original stories about Mark Driscoll for uh, World Magazine whenever all of this happened. But again, it, you know, in the case of Mars Hill Church, that church had elders, but most of the elders, and by most, I mean like 33 of the 36 elders were actually staff members of the church. They couldn't confront Mark. They couldn't go to him and say, hey, brother, you've got this issue that we really need to deal with because Mark could just fire them. They were employees of Mark Driscoll. So to have an independent board, to have the kind of um, accountability and transparency that is necessary, I think is a great protection against that celebritization, as David French called it, or the Christian industrial complex, as I called it in a lover's squirrel. Yeah, I love it. I want to talk about some of the remedies to all of this moving forward, perhaps after the break in a few minutes. But one more question on this, Warren. You've been around uh, Christendom, I suppose, the social expression of Christianity for quite a number of years now. What are you seeing among Christians in terms of the rippling impact of these scandals? It seems like one or two or three, maybe the Jimmy Swaggerts and the Tammy Faye Bakers and, and Jimmy Bakers, th- that season resulted in, in a certain kind of implication among believers. But the sheer volume of the scandals now, I think something very different is happening among Christians and even non-Christians in our society. Well, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, we live in a secular, cynical age, and these scandals are not helping that. I mean, you can look at Gallup surveys and Pew Trust surveys, and you can see pretty plainly that a trust and credibility of our institutions, not just church and Christian institutions, but government, uh, politics, uh, media, Trust and confidence of the American people in these institutions are at or near an all-time low. There's no question that these scandals um, can contribute to that, have contributed to that. But I do think we've got to talk about it because you know what? The Bible says that the truth will set you free. It always sets us free, even when those truths are hard. And so I think the greater number of scandals that we're seeing, that is in part the report of the result of media coverage, like the kind that we're doing it here at Ministry Watch. While they can be tough and painful, it might temporarily uh, result in this loss of trust or loss of faith in institutions. I believe that it's the only way forward, that unless there is true confession and repentance, and that means really facing these sins, uh, I just don't see how there can be a biblical way forward. So as tough as it is, 
as painful as it is in the short term, I think it's a process that we've got to go through. Yeah, that's great stuff. Let's uh, step away for just a moment here. When we come back, let's keep talking about the remedies moving forward. We can identify the problem. Sometimes it's a lot harder to figure out the remedies, but I think you have some great insights with words like what it means to be wise, how do we confront, transparency, accountability. All of these words matter in terms of the reformation and the reestablishment of a healthy version of God's kingdom here on earth. We're talking with author Warren Cole Smith this morning about this book, Faith-Based Fraud. Great book. Highly recommended. It's available on all of the usual channels. We'll be back in just a minute on Mornings Without Carmen. We are chatting with Warren Cole Smith this morning in his book, Faith-Based Fraud, How to Learn from the Mistakes of Others and Bring Credibility Back to Christianity. And Warren, you and I were chatting a little bit at the break, just even about how we identify and train and raise up young pastors. I've been doing that at seminaries for the better part of the last 15 years. And mm-hmm. I can be guilty as well, Warren, of in a classroom maybe of 20 prospective pastors, there's inevitably one or two or three that kind of have this unusual charisma or unusual giftedness. And you, you, you gravitate towards them and you give them even maybe more resources. And then you see these big ministries built around this singular person. And you talk about even the idea of a ministry should not be built around one person like that, that the church is something different than this person. But we really have been guilty, I think, on a lot of levels of empowering a single individual and putting them in some pretty rough places that can be pretty intoxicating in terms of the power that they begin to wield and and what then they think they're entitled to. So are we set up a little bit for some of these failures, even in how we train our young ministers? Well, I think we are, and I think you've raised a great point. You know, I often say that um, that these uh, pastors that you know have become celebrity pastors, it's it's not for nothing, if I could say it that way, that they that they become famous. I mean, they are gifted, and we should celebrate that giftedness. I mean, they they are often great communicators. There's uh, maybe great writers. Maybe there's something about them uh, that um, God can use in very powerful ways, and often does use in very powerful ways. But but I say it this way often, Peter, that people rise because of their competence. They fall because of their character. Mm. And what often happens is that these gifted young pastors or ministry leaders that we see, um, they achieve a level of success early in life uh, before they've had the kinds of life experiences that will allow their character to be tempered, for the, and that allow their character to be strengthened. And I think that's the problem that we have, which is, you know, why I say that um, we should, n- you know, not despise the youth of these young pastors, as the Bible uh, might put it, but uh, and we should celebrate their giftedness because all gifts come from God, and we should celebrate both the gift and the, but more importantly, the giver of the gift. But we should be very, very careful, those of us that come around these uh, gifted young pastors, that we create transparency and accountability, that we put them in structures uh, where they don't have too much power too young in life. I recount the story in Faith-Based Fraud of Darren Patrick, who that happened to. He ended up, uh, he's a gifted, was a gifted communicator, ended up um, uh, having a very large national platform, books, uh, speaking engagement opportunities, but he ended up having a moral failure and uh, in, and ultimately, I'm sad to say, ended up uh, dying by suicide. Uh, it, it was a it was a tragic story, 
And um, I, I, you know, again, this wanders a little afield, Peter, but sometimes I'm fond of saying that I don't think we human beings are wired um, to be uh, these big celebrities. I don't think we are wired for the kind of fame that um, too often Christian leaders get when they're young in life, and it can have a very detrimental effect on them emotionally, their families, and their ministries. And we've got to be really, really careful about that stuff. Yeah, I think you're so right. I referenced it a couple of different times, but I was part of a mega church pretty early in life in ministry, and I remember speaking to thousands of people on the weekend at an early age, and and, and that was... Uh, nothing short of intoxicating on some level. Oh, you kind of brush it across is. it, right? And and I remember yep. thinking, I'm kind of glad that I didn't continue in that direction because I don't know what would have happened in those places. And, and you reference the idea of character development, and, and maybe that's part of the remedy moving forward in this, is that it, when you're talking, I was thinking about the words of Jesus when he said to the Pharisees or the, the religious leaders of his day, he said, you know, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're filled with the with the bones of dead men. And what might it mean that we would judge ministry success not by the metrics of the size of the church, but by the character of the person and the character of the people, that they're actually developing an authentic Christ-likeness that can guard against all of this intoxicating power that might come from it? Well, I think that's a great point. You know, it's, it's interesting that we um, often measure fruitfulness in ministry with numbers. You know, how many people are showing up on Sunday morning? How many people are getting saved? You know, how many people show up at our at our concerts or our events or whatever? And listen, don't get me wrong. I, the, I'm not opposed to numbers. The Bible has a whole book dedicated to numbers. It's called <laughs> the Book of Numbers. But, uh, but, you know, it's also interesting that that is not the only way, in fact, not even the primary way that the Bible judges fruitfulness. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit are love joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering. Those are the qualities that we should be uh, looking to whenever we are trying to discern the true fruitfulness of a ministry, not just how big it is, not just how big its budget is or how many people are on the staff. And so I think in some ways we do have our metrics messed up uh, within the evangelical church. Uh, we we will often... Um, not put in these hedges of protection, uh, of accountability, guardrails, I call them sometimes, of, um, of an independent board, for example, on a, on a Christian ministry, a nonprofit organization, or uh, a de deacons or elders. Uh, you know, I, I admire, for example, Mark Dever, uh, the pastor of a church in Washington, D.C. called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. His church is landlocked, and they purposefully plant churches within the Washington, D.C. area and encourage their members to go to those new churches so that Mark's church can't get any bigger than probably about eight or 900 people. It just won't hold more people than that. And and you'll see, on the other hand, other churches that will, when they outgrow a building, they just move into a bigger building and uh, rather than plant a church. And so I think that there are some things that we can do like that, rethinking the way we um, um, measure fruitfulness and faithfulness that uh, I think could make a big difference in the way we sort of do church these days. And Warren, we just have a little bit less than a minute left. In terms of some of those guardrails, you referenced a couple of things. Anything else when I think about if there's a, a listener here that's part of a ministry and maybe those guardrails aren't up, are there some things that can be instituted, simple things that can start that guardrail process? Well, a church, as I said, should have 
independent elders or and or deacons that provide accountability for the pastor. If it's a Christian ministry, there should be an independent board, and that means a board made up of people who are not employees uh, of the organization. I would say that if you're a donor, you can have a big impact. You can ask tough questions of the ministry, like, can I see your budget? Uh, can I see how much your senior executives get paid? Great ministries love those questions because it gives them an opportunity to shine. If you don't get great answers to those tough questions, uh, that's when you should maybe step back and say, hey, maybe this ministry needs um, to grow a little bit before they get more of my support. That's great stuff, Warren. Thanks so much this morning. The book, again, is Fraud in the Church, How to Learn from the Mistakes of Others and Bring Credibility Back to Christianity. It's available in text form right now. Audiobook is coming out shortly. Highly recommend it if you're listening this morning. Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. We'll take a short break and wrap up our show today for the 8th of June on this Tuesday morning on Mornings Without Carmen. Wrap up the show with a quick text about National Best Friend Day coming from regular listener Joe. Says that in college in Montana, they called his friend Mr. Sweetness after some football player that used to be called Sweet Dave. He and his wife live in Montana and have three children scattered abroad. He is my best friend. We text each other regularly. Friends for 40 years now. Sometimes I feel like my name is Jonathan instead of Grumpy (laughs) Joe. I love that, Joe. Thanks for the text line this morning and just for these stories about having best friends and the importance of friendship in life. Great show again today. Appreciate what Warren had to say, reminding us that even when Christianity is in a little tough shape right now in our country, the kingdom remains. It is sovereign and it will remain until the end for that tomb is empty. Catch you tomorrow, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.